a bird is present, you know its needs are being met on the habitat. And with the suite of species with subtle differences in what they need, you can get a really good window on, on the health of the environment. And because they sing and because they're active during the day, they're fun and they're also useful as a tool for discovering what's going on in the environment. On today's episode, without any shame, we're again talking about birds. Should one choose to Google why do people like birds or bird watching, there's no lack of blog posts providing a slew of personal opinions about the joy of it. I even found a peer-reviewed study conducted in Germany in 2020 called Biological Diversity Evokes Happiness with a tagline that more bird species in the vicinity of individual Europeans increases life satisfaction as much as higher income. So needless to say, if you've never gone bird watching, you should because it's scientifically proven to make you happier. For me, it's a combination of the mindfulness and presence that comes from the need to hyper-focus on one dynamic of a landscape. Though that one dynamic can often be quite chaotic depending on how many different bird species are around. And in my professional work, I've come to understand and look to bird activity as an indicator of land and habitat health. While there are of course a few outliers, birds have wings and can fly. And that means they have the ability to observe, assess, and utilize resources in a way we as humans just simply can't. There's also the matter of adaptation and the ability of certain bird species to create homes in very unlikely places. Taken a bit out of context, in 1993's Jurassic Park, Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, infamously said, life uh, finds a way. We've already discussed this on a few previous episodes, with tricolored blackbirds utilizing dairy operations and silage fields, or Swainson's hawks nesting in an invasive tamarisk. Wildlife and plant life alike are finding a way to exist on our altered landscapes. That's not to say there aren't winners and losers, and that's why I was happy to sit down with Chris Kennard and continue this conversation around wildlife success stories in unlikely places as well as concerning trends. Chris is uniquely qualified to talk about this as he spent the last 30 years working in a very unlikely wildlife refuge, aptly named the Bufferlands, which surround a sewage treatment plant in South Sacramento County. In fact, he kind of embodies the all land is beautiful ethos. He was also involved in the most recent Sac County breeding bird atlas effort which found that there are actually more bird species breeding in the county than there were 30 years ago. And he's the best individual I personally know at auditory identification of birds, though he's certainly not one to brag and would be quick to point out others who are better. Make sure to take a look in the show notes for links mentioned during our conversation. And with that out of the way, hope you enjoy this episode. So it's into doing this podcast and I've realized that there's already kind of just been a focus on birds, but yeah, good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, and I, th- and the way I actually wanted to start this off, our conversation off was really why, why is that? Be- the, cause the obvious one, and when I, when I run through people who I might want to talk to, it's, it's predominantly talking to people about birds. And so, I mean, to answer my own question, I first was thinking, I mean, first and foremost, 
birds are accessible, right? right? They're, they're everywhere. You can step right. outside of your house in downtown Sacramento. You can step outside of your house out in the foothills. There will be birds. Exactly. Yeah. They, they may not be as interesting or as exciting. I could think, but still, that's all a matter of perspective. But again, they're there. They're generally easy to spot because they're flying all over the place. They, they make noise. And so at least in my experience, they're also they're, the presence of birds is generally a really in, good indicator for, for habitat and land health. Yeah, I think from a you know conservation and land management standpoint, that's one of the great things about birds is that they they sing and they're visible, they're active during the daytime, and there are a lot of them. You know, it's not quite like insects, it's not overwhelming. And yet in uh, just Sacramento County, which is sort of my my patch. Uh, I claim the whole thing. <laughs> Even the little tail down at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's has a unique subset of birds down there Absolutely. with some coastal influence. But they provide really fine detail on if, if a bird is present, you know its needs are being met on the habitat. And with the suite of species with subtle differences in what they need, you can get a really good window on on the health of the environment. And because they sing and because they're active during the day, you know, it's not like you have to go out and set grids of small mammal traps, uh, though that's important too. But they're fun and they're also useful as a, as a tool for discovering what's going on in the environment. And, and even as we're talking and I'm thinking about it, I think another thing is that it's also interesting in where you have the Right, we're just talking all bird species. You also have you have birds who are who are vegetarian. You have others who are con- or are carnivores, and so you're also right. You're, it's also they're they're representing plant health. They're pre- representing wildlife, you know, activity on a on a property as well. So I, again, just sort of a, a good encompassing representation, right? Absolutely, and then they also kind of like to think of them. They tie the continents together with their migration, and especially you know in the Americas. Uh, in that context we're talking about, you know, some of our birds are are resident, but a lot of them are just here part of the year, whether it's uh, wintering or or breeding season or, uh, you know, many just pass through in spring. And we always say fall, but it's really late summer when the fall migrants come through for, for a lot of species anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and yeah, uh, birds have wings. So yeah, they can cover a lot of ground and I think maybe just to maybe cap it is, yeah, I mean, they can capitalize on each region of our continent when it's the most useful. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is, yeah, there's just not a lot of other species that can do that. Right. Right. You know, and a lot of uh, the bird families that take like for tanagers or, or warblers or some of the flycatchers that are more, their bases in the tropics but, you know, as the saying goes, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and the birds will come up at the optimum time of year and utilize this landscape or, or maybe just pass through and go up to the boreal forest and then you know, go down into the tropics again to spend the winter. Well, so then with that, then let's actually uh, let's go ahead and introduce who, who are you? Who are we talking to? Hi, I'm, I'm Chris Kennard, and I'm a natural resource specialist at the, what are we called these days, the Sac Sewer Bufferlands. 
And I'm also a volunteer with the Central Valley Bird Club and Sacramento Audubon Society. And, um, you know, that sort of sums up a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. And then any else, anything else in between maybe that as opportunities represent right. themselves. Maybe I'll throw in there is the way we've, uh, I think, the way we have got introduced to one another is in a previous uh, role working for the Sacramento Valley Conservancy, I wanted to uh, install burrowing owl boxes on a preserve. And when I asked who should I talk to, I was told we should reach out to Chris Kennard because, you know, he's, 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 done a, he's done that a few times. Yeah, I've been lucky to work with burrowing owls uh, for over 25 years now. Yeah, very cool. And we will definitely dive into that a little bit more. But let's start off with, I think, in the... In the theme of this podcast, where it's sort of celebrating the uh, obvious and then not so obvious beauty of of California and beyond, is uh, so you, again you mentioned that you're working for Sac Sewer District at a uh, at the Bufferlands Preserve, uh, right. and I think most people would not associate natural resource management, uh, biology, people talking about birds in association with Sac with a sewer district. Yeah, so that's uh, you know on on several levels, uh, in, really an interesting story. The Bufferlands was created when they built the Sacramento Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant, and they they consolidated a lot of the wastewater treatment plant in in one area. There were small little plants scattered around the Sacramento region, and you know, nobody wants to live right next to a sewer treatment plant. So uh, they decided to buy 3,500 acres, kind of in the middle of nowhere at the time between Sacramento and Elk Grove, and site the treatment plant in the middle of that. And you ended up with between 2,200 and 2,500 acres, depending on how you look at what's preserved and what's not, of a, of a buffer. And it's sort of a open space donut that exists in uh, rapidly expanding, uh, you know, South Sacramento and on the edge of Elk Grove. And for a long time was just really to, you know, keep the public separate from the wastewater treatment plant. And then it was recognized that we have this open space island surrounded by development, and it's a great opportunity to do restoration, which really uh, kicked off in earnest in the late 80s. And then since the early 90s, uh, really 1990, but building on that, we've had a, a staff managing the property, and and uh, we do all sorts of things related to that. But that's what the, the Bufferlands is. And of course, it has almost 250 species of birds we've recorded now, and not just the Bufferlands, but even the you know, water is such an important thing. And even the, the wastewater ponds, you know, attract a lot of birds. So you get shorebirds and ducks and gulls and things using those. Awesome. And we will dive into that as well. But yeah, it's interesting to see how the the adaptability of bird species and kind of using what's available to them. So I think that's definitely something we've I've earmarked for us to, to dive into a little bit further. Definitely. Um, so uh, I really appreciate that that sort of introduction. And so come back just a little bit. You had mentioned that initially it was to just the, the buffer lens was to buffer the, the plant from the people. But uh, you had mentioned so it was in the 90s that then someone someone sort of decided, hey, we should we could maybe be doing more with this with this land around here. Yeah, there was a, a study uh, that was 
initiated and they had all sorts of ideas you know maybe there could be you know people wanted always want a golf course so that was an idea but but because of the treatment plant and some of the chemicals used on site they didn't want uh, a lot of people on there just uh you know day after day so the idea and was maybe fi- keep... fishing golf balls out of a sewage, sewage <laughs> yeah. <pools>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be kind of interesting <laughs> and another idea was to create a big uh, paper pulp project and plant a bunch of trees and they actually we have this little plot on the property we called the experimental forest and there are like different species of eucalyptus and different pines and things and it actually it's still there and it's kind of a funny little habitat uh, that has you know, again, talking about birds being adaptable, you know, you get interesting things. We had uh, red-breasted nuthatches, which are a, a mountain species, you know, showing up there this winter um, because there are conifers there. And they, it was sort of an invasion year of those mostly mountain or coastal conifer-dwelling birds coming into the valley, probably looking for food and finding those little conifers that were planted back 30-some years ago. Uh, so it, it is, it's really dynamic. And that's, you know, again, back to birds and why they're interesting is, you know, they are so dynamic and it changes, you know, you can go for a walk in the same neighborhood. Every day is going to be a little bit different. Very cool. So then I'm trying to think of how, how do we want to sort of dissect buffer lens and, and you. And so maybe let's, let's turn the clock back a little bit and we'll go into a little bit more of just personally, you know, who you are. And so, and I, I can't recall, are you a Sacramento native? Oh, I actually grew up in uh, Sonoma County, kind of semi-rural uh, between Petaluma and Santa Rosa. Not not a bad place to grow up. No, no, it was great. <laughs> and I think my my internal uh, thermostat is still set to that weather. So I, the summers are, are rough. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I really uh, mostly like the climate here, but that is some of the hottest summer days I Pine for Sonoma County. Yeah, I, I hear you on that one. Okay, well then, so then when, what brought you to, um, to to the Sacramento Valley? Where, where does the story go from there? What, what was young Chris doing? So, well, right after high school, my, my mom moved to Loomis, and uh, they, uh, my mom and stepfather managed a horse stables, and I was... You know, I didn't have a really uh, strong plan of what I was going to do. So I lived with them for a while and I started going to Sac State. And then, you know, I met my wife there and you know, we settled down closer to school. And I still live uh, just east of uh, Sac State campus. I've pretty much lived, you know, within five miles of the same area since 1992. Got it. So obviously you've, you've seen this place change change a bit yes yeah um what was your uh what did you major in so uh as you might expect i majored in philosophy and government <laughs> <laughs> well it's they're still real i mean you work for a government agency so. Ex- exactly yeah and it's good to be philosophical right especially yes absolutely yeah and so it was uh you know it's interesting my dad had a uh, master's degree in zoology and so i I was always really interested in outdoor stuff and I even went through a bird phase, a pretty big bird phase in my like 10 to 12 year old range. And then, you know, I guess as I became more into my teens and in high school, like, you know, I was always aware of birds, but 
uh, not so much. And then, you know, after school, uh, well, you know, at school there were, you know, you get there, I think I, I started out as an environmental studies major. And then I took a few classes and I just had some professors I enjoyed. And pretty soon I was taking these philosophy classes and getting more into that. And it was, I guess, a a part of knowledge that, you know, sort of was felt like my own. So I was doing a lot of reading and that and exploring. And then, you know, after about seven years, it was like, well, it's time to graduate. So <laughs> I did that and I didn't really have any uh, job prospects out of that. You know, I learned about AmeriCorps, uh, actually my last semester at Sac State, and that was in Yolo County. And that's actually where I met Jerry, Jamie Marty. Both uh, my wife, Kimia, and I went a year in AmeriCorps there and met Jamie and a lot of my good friends to this day. It was really a, a, a good experience. And that's where I, I started working on some habitat restoration projects. They had a Yolo County flood control site and worked with local high school students to do some restoration projects on that. So we sort of mentored them and also maintained the site and... I met John Anderson, who uh, passed away a few years ago now, but he was a real pioneer in uh, native grassland restoration. And That's Hedgerow Farms. Hedgerow correct. Farms, yeah. exactly. And so I did some work out there with uh, Chris Rose, and through Chris Rose, I met Brian Young, who's, uh, well, now he's... Uh, forget his title, but he, he was, he cares about uh, titles. yeah, he was the Bufferlands manager for a long time and now he's moved up one notch, but, uh, you know, I still work with him all the time. And, you know, I met him back in, uh, would have been 96 out at Hedgerow Farms. Wow. And you're, you're still keeping him in check, right? <laughs> I don't know about that, but he, he's a great guy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And we've, we've met on as well. So, okay, well, cool. So then, you know, as I'm looking through my notes here, uh, we, You'd mentioned to, in our sort of in our emails back and forth before that that there's a, a moment where you ended up going to the Tall Forest at Cosumnes River Preserve. Is that close to AmeriCorps time, or is that now? Have you have you already gotten hired at uh, Saxur? I was temporary at at the Bufferlands after AmeriCorps. Like there were a couple of false starts. Uh, actually, I worked for just kind of doing maintenance with Sacramento County Parks for about half a year. And then, so I have some, some skills. I wouldn't say I'm a great farm hand or anything, but, you know, restoration is such a mix of skills. So, you know, tractor driving and weed eating and identifying and uh, controlling weeds. And just, I learned myself, you know, through the AmeriCorps thing and through working in the American River Parkway with county parks. Uh, how much I liked being outside. And I really was focused on habitat restoration at the time and, you know, was considering going back to school. At the same time, Jamie was was back in school again and kind of that looked like a really good path to pursue s some sort of graduate studies in uh, natural resources. And somewhere along the way, uh, this latent interest in birds that I had as a childhood, uh, from childhood, just kept popping up. And that was what I was reading about and most interested in, even though, you know, I was supposed to be studying or, or thinking more about restoration, which I was, but really what I wanted to do and read about was about birds and their relationship to the ha habitat. And so as part of that, you know, I learned about these bird walks at 
Kasamnis River Preserve and joined Jean Trochet out there and was just blown away with what we were doing in the near dark. And he's calling out all these birds, you know, and we had a list of about 25 birds before we even started our walk. And I was, you know, just like, I want to be more like that. How do you, and yeah, I mean, even myself today, I'm like, geez, how do you do that? It's just being out all the time. And, uh, you know, I, people ask John and he's still, you know, he's a bit of an auditory savant Mm -hmm. and, you know, people think I know birdsong really well. You know, I know the local birds well, but uh, John's amazing, you know, and if something is different or something that he heard uh, when he lived back east, you know, he'll he'll pick it up. And it's just an amazing auditory memory. But like he says, listen to everything. And if you hear a unfamiliar sound, you know, try to track it down. There are tapes, and now, you know, that's dates me. I'm, you know, 52 now. <laughs> are you so, still doing everything uh, on cassette? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everything, uh, mostly on smartphone. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, there are recordings, and you can listen. There used to be CDs and tapes where you'd listen, like, the Birds of California song, you know, and, and it would start with, you know, mallard, quack, quack, or, you know, whatever, you know, and work all the way through. And you learn some things that way. But... There's nothing like, at least for me, and I know a lot of people learning birdsong is actually being out in the field and kind of creating a story. I mean, I can think of certain instances that I learned a bird song for the first time, and I can still remember the scenario of hearing it, tracking it down, seeing where it was in relation to where I was standing. And that's, you know, just there's no substitute for that kind of field experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're here to talk about birds and, and habitat, but de- I think there's definitely something to be said about kind of all the different, oh, auditory experiences and visual experiences and how you associate you associate that with a moment. And uh, right, and it's, stick, it's just in- it's interesting. You say that, and I can certainly think of moments where I experienced my first, you know, flower, bird, tree, and that's the part that, yeah, right. That's yeah. that moment that will stick with you forever. Yeah. And that's what, you know, keeps us, I think for those of us who just get hooked on, on being in the field, that's what keeps us coming back. Yeah. So we're sort of on this track, sort of nineties now into the two thousands. And I think you've basically kind of developed your niche as the bird guy at sex or is that, is that, is that an appropriate yeah, way of that's, describing that's that? about right though. I, with the caveat is saying, I mean, we have, uh, Folks on staff, especially my coworker Jen, who is really the raptor person on site, and really the the burrowing owl person on the buffer lands. I kind of took my interest or awareness of the burrowing owls on the buffer lands, and you know there were some requests for information, and I kind of got hooked in uh, looking for burrowing owls all over the region. But we can get into that mm-hmm. later, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, I I just started getting really into bird song and um, other birds like songbirds, shorebirds, uh, not the raptors and the waterfowl, which were pretty well covered by the staff before I really started focusing on it. Uh, Not to say that they were ignored before, but I went, you know, full into it with both feet. I I think it goes to show that, I mean, we're talking about birds, but there's hundreds of thousands of species of birds and they utilize habitat. So yeah, they utilize habitat in different ways. And so, I mean, to one can definitely specialize in just certain components of the entire 
bird profile that we have. So exactly. There is, you know, I, I, I know that I will learn more about birds and, and the related habitats, uh, you know, for as long as I can. And there's no limit to what can be learned. You don't, it's not like you're, you're going to learn it all and then, uh, you know, feel like you're okay. And onto the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think even, uh, I remember when I was talking to, um, to Bob Meese about tricolored work and obviously there's an individual who pretty much knows most of what there is to, to know about tricolors, but I know he had talked about how he was actually now starting to study regional differences in calls, which I think just shows yeah. you, I mean, you can just keep going further down the rabbit hole and, uh, there's always something more to be learned. Yeah. And the more, you know, you, you learn about questions that if you didn't knew less, you wouldn't even know to ask that question. Exactly. And it just keeps you know, opening up new things. Yeah. Well, so then let's now, well, let's transition a little bit into the uh, Sacramento County Breeding Birds Atlas that you were involved with. So, so again, the title of that is Sacramento County Breeding Birds, A Tale of Two Atlases and Three Decades of Change. Yeah. So give me, um, give myself and the listeners a little bit more context on, yeah, what, what was that? Who was involved and what was that effort? Uh, what did that effort look like? Right. So a, a breeding bird atlas is an attempt to pick an area. And in California, a lot of them are county based. So the Sacramento breeding bird atlas, the first atlas was done by Tim Manolis. Uh, well, he organized it and maybe 40 plus volunteers did a lot of the surveys. And so it's broken up. I think it's something like 138 five kilometer by five kilometer, which is about three miles by three mile blocks encompass the county. Mm -hmm. And so then uh, teams of people would get assignments and go out and count each block. And then they figure out, well, what still needs to be covered and try to you know, cover as many blocks as you can. And usually it's done over a five-year period. I think the first atlas actually went for six years, and then it never got published. It's a lot of work to get all that information compiled. I compile the Folsom Christmas bird count, and uh, I've been, you know, that's just a single-day survey, and I'm still working to pull all those numbers together and get them submitted by the end of February. So I can imagine the effort that Tim had to, uh, you know, and this is pre-computers for the most part. So it was kind of languishing, but a lot of a lot of the early work had been done on that. And then Ed Pandolfino contacted me, and I don't know if he had in mind the the comparison idea of the two atlases initially, but because I am, or at the time I was the sole, now I have a couple of folks helping me manage the data in uh, Sacramento County. eBird is a program. I know I'm getting in the weeds here, but I'll try to be quick. No, this, the, the, uh, you know, but again, the, the, this is the, the whole point of this is getting granular on stuff and yeah. Yeah, talking through, talking through it because we can talk about, we were right. We were already speaking before you can talk about the kind of the big overarching takeaways and those are good, but there's also people who want to hear about the nitty gritty. Yeah. So do it. So just really quickly that eBird is this program that's uh, run by Cornell Lab of Ornithology and has a lot of partners, including National Audubon Society. And the idea was bird watchers, birders, they go out, they see birds, they keep lists, 
And then these lists are in notebooks and, you know, when they die, the notebooks probably get thrown away. Yeah. So it's an online resource to, instead of put it in paper and, you know, maybe tell a few friends about it, to record it into this huge database. And it's a massive program now. It, it really started picking up steam around 2002 to 2004 in that time window. And now they have made it so much easier where on your smartphone, you can bring up the list. And this is one of the things I did with using a template that was already created, was come up with what are the likely species each season that would occur in Sacramento County and what are reasonable numbers. So if people pull up their list, and it's actually a great teaching tool because it tells you what birds to expect. And if you put in too many, or you put in a species that isn't on the standard list, then it asks for details. And now you can upload audio and photos. And I am one of a huge network of people who contact observers to ask for more details or actually help them with you know, the photo you have is actually of this bird. So it's just a wonderful program. And another thing that it can do is uh, it can be used to do bird surveys. Mm -hmm. And so that was the idea because it, you know, you have your GPS and your phone, you can see exactly where you were and track your walk and record the birds. And then there are breeding codes. So that's how an atlas works is you can one of the best ways of telling a bird is nesting is if it's holding sometimes like several insects. You know, you see those pictures of puffins maybe mm-hmm. when they're coming in to their breeding colony yeah, they and they have all the fish, the fish lined yeah. up in their bill. Well, robins will do the same thing with worms mm-hmm. or a beetle larvae or things like that that they feed their young. And, you know, if you look at a robin this time of year, they're not flying around with a row of worms in their bill. They're eating them right on the spot. So that is a hint that there are young that are being fed. So that's considered a confirmation of breeding. And so each of those 138 or so blocks that where someone records a robin carrying food like that, that's considered confirmed as breeding for a robin in that block. And so over the five years, we did this project from 2015 to 2020. And then, you know, Ed got in contact with Tim and there was a a guy, Rusty Scalf, and then Lily Douglas came on board and uh, Rusty had done all the maps for Tim's initial effort. And so everything was mapped. And then we you know, it's a lot of doing, but <laughs> we got everything, you know, in uh, in columns and can c- compare the different blocks and figure out all of the species that were either confirmed or probable, which means maybe there's a pair uh, seen together, but, you know, no confirmation of nesting, but they're probably nesting or just possible. You see like a meadowlark in a grassland at the right time of year. It's probably it, it's possibly breeding there. If it's singing there for more than a week, then it's probably breeding there. If you see it carrying food or you see newly fledged young or you actually find a nest, which is very hard to do, then it's considered confirmed. So then all of those bird observations, we could compare the window from 88 to 92 with 2015 to 2020. And it was really interesting what we found. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
let's get into it. Yeah, let's, I think the, again, sort of looking at notes here, it was, I think one of the biggest surprises was how resilient so many of the bird species are. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we were all really pleasantly surprised to see that you know, we had more uh, species confirmed in Atlas II than in Atlas I, which is just pretty counterintuitive. But the, the birds are resilient and uh, for the most part, and that there is a lot of habitat. You know, that's a great thing about birds is a lot of them can handle pretty highly modified landscapes or uh, little patches of landscapes, but there are some specialists. You know, it was definitely uh, a story that, you know, we weren't surprised, you know, being out in the field all the time. We weren't surprised by the losses, but we were more pleasantly surprised by how many species were doing well. And some of the ones that weren't doing as well are, are species that were already kind of thinner on the ground and grassland species. You know, that is just a, a story the world over that grassland species are really struggling. And some species require pretty vast areas of unbroken habitat. And those are the ones that have trouble because, you know, it's not just straight up development, but it's also conversion of grasslands into orchards and vineyards, just degradation and, you know, not having a mix of habitats. You know, some species like grasshopper sparrows or white-tailed kites, you know, do better with longer grass for breeding and other species, you know, I'm going a little bit out of the breeding season, but uh, some like wintering raptors, you know, that Central Valley is just an amazing place for hawks and owls and uh, eagles uh, in the wintertime. And they acquire the prey base and some shorter grass habitat sometimes. So if it's really overgrown, they can't find their prey. So all of these things kind of come together. And, you know, anytime there's habitat changes, there are winners and losers. But the story of losers tends to be somewhat consistent. You know, I like to contrast uh, something like a spotted towhee, which is a really common breeding bird in a fairly dense understory. Uh, it's in the sparrow family, really an attractive bird, pretty remarkable looking, but a lot of people just don't notice them. Which but, I find hard to believe because they are quite uh, stark looking, especially the males, right? Uh, black and orange and white. I can say actually... Outside my house here, we've got a lot of them. Like, it's probably the most prevalent bird species we've got around the house here. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And again, yeah. lots of, right, yeah, lots of brushy understory, lots of nooks and crannies for them to, to be hanging around out. And, exactly. And they're just, they're starting to sing, uh, you know, just as we're getting closer and closer to spring. But they are almost at a constant density where there's habitat, they're going to be there if there's enough. And, you know, if you have a block of habitat, you could almost do a calculation and figure out how many spotted towhees there are likely to be. You have another species like tricolored blackbird or like uh, burrowing owls that are really thin on the ground and they move around a bit and they may be at a site for a few years and then be gone. And the idea of preserving a block of habitat for burrowing owls, say, 
is it doesn't work unless they have these alternate sites that they can move around on. And, you know, that's really hard from a land management perspective and especially, you know, in a growing county. Uh, a lot of that open space habitat that they require, you know, and especially all that reserve habitat, it's a lot to keep in reserve, you know, when you can have, you know, 1,500 homes or you can have some potential burrowing owl habitat. Sure. Which, of course, in, in more my line of work in the, the land trust world, conservancy yeah, preserve establishment. Talk to an extent about it with with Bob, kind of same same sort of through the lens of tricolors, right? How do we, yeah, how do you preserve habitat for a species that doesn't come back to the same place every year? Because I think I think probably a big challenge there is we're as we're looking at it through human lenses, right? We're like, well, we build a home and we we come back to it every year. That's that's how we live, but. As I've as I've learned in a few different ways, especially from Bob, is you can't anthropomorphize the birds because they're looking at the world differently. Right, right, and they need the the environment needs to meet their needs all year too, and they need need to be able to get through lean times, whether it be drought or lower productivity from insect prey that they may require. So, uh, yeah, it's really a challenge. So then my question for you is to back up. So in spite of development, land use changes, conversion, where is the success with the, with the bird species who have maybe became more prolific in the area? Kind of kind of backing it up a little bit, right? Because we're talking about that we're talking more about the specialist species right now, but yet there are more breeding birds now, despite the fact that the, the, the ground's been altered a lot more. Right. And I don't know that it's the habitat is improved. It definitely has for some species. You know, some species are what are called anthrophilic or species that, you know, are attracted to human environments. Uh, you know, some of these things we we have the numbers uh, that are pretty much don't lie, and then we have kind of these hypotheses that we put out there, and some of them seem to make a lot of sense. But I'll. I'll mention a few things. So one, it, it's not a huge uptick, you know, it's just, I can't remember the numbers, but it, it's a marginal uptick, but it, it wasn't a decline in species. I think maybe maybe an, an, an important thing to stress before going further is the fact that the amount of growth this region has seen, I think, right, we're talking just even from your time here, starting in the 90s to, to today's, I can't, I can't recall, you know, the exact population growth, but I mean, it's I would almost think it's to the tune of probably a million, at least a million more people have moved here in 30 years. Yeah, that seems seems right to yeah. me. And so, yeah, a lot of birds, uh, a lot of bird species are, they're not as abundant as they were, but they're still there. So a lot of common birds are still common, but they're not, they might have gone from abundant to very common, you know, so there's some of that. I mean, you take out uh, habitat, and and you do lose them. You you also we've we've had instances of some birds that are are I think from a more population level are learning to adapt to these new environments. We have Cooper's hawks uh, doing really well in urban environments. You know they were back in the late 70s they were considered species of special concern. 
and now they've they've really grown you know i don't know if it's in part the prevalence of human assistance in form of bird feeders because they definitely uh, feed at bird feeders but they're also nesting in you know fairly urban definitely suburban environments uh as the trees that have been planted around sacramento the ornamentals even a lot of them are are suitable for the cooper's hawks another major theme in our book was the increase in western bluebirds and uh, lesser goldfinches and you know when i first started getting really serious about birding uh, there was a lot of talk about just where the bluebirds used to be here but now they're gone and it was for quite a few years uh, even at Casumnes and at the bufferlands and i know at the bufferlands as recently as 2014 we started you know, bluebirds became a regular occurrence, western bluebirds. We actually, in the early years, had more records of mountain bluebirds that were occasionally would turn up in the wintertime than we did western bluebirds. And now there are, uh, you know, several pairs breeding on the property, and they seem to be there to stay. And it could be an increase in nest boxes because they're a cavity nester. It could be because they're uh, maturing. Uh, Some of the trees are maturing and developing more cavities that they can nest in, but uh, they are definitely thriving. And, you know, uh, my wife works downtown and, you know, sees them regularly just on her walk around the building. Sure. Yeah. So altered landscape has been a theme of this podcast. We're talking about, you know, more development. These kind of common birds are are have are sticking around. The one thing you had also mentioned prior to uh, us meeting today was the kind of this uh, this utilization of these what a what a biologist naturalist might uh, identify as a degraded landscape dominated by by non-native plant species, but right. but yet still extremely productive. Uh, I think in in the context of of bluebirds and and. Um, and goldfinches, was that correct? Uh, those, those maybe, but al- also other species. I mean, some. Uh, so one of my favorite habitats is kind of a, as an odd habitat, and it's one that uh, I don't even have a good name for it, but I'll call it weedy fields. Yeah, I thought we might workshop a name, but yeah. Anyways, we'll go. We'll go with weedy fields, and we'll think if we can see if we can come yeah, up with something. Yeah, maybe your <laughs> listeners will have some suggestions. Uh, but fields, sometimes they'll uh, have mustard. Uh, at the Bufferlands, one of our kind of mascot species there is uh, blue grosbeak, which a lot of people haven't even heard of. But a lot of people actually come to the Bufferlands, a lot of birders, to get their blue grosbeak mm. fix yeah, every year. Check that off, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a lot of times they want to see the common birds or the regular birds around the area every year. So the Bufferlands is probably the easiest place to see them. And they're in this kind of mix of, uh, they build their nests in a mix of annual sunflower, sweet white clover, which is uh, non-native, cocklebur, which is native, but it definitely feels weedy, you know, mustards, uh, poison hemlock, you know, you get this three, sometimes four foot high stands of these uh, weedy habitats that will just be full of red winged blackbirds, and you get common yellow throats and uh, song sparrows. Even you know sometimes spotted towhees will nest on the ground in that type of habitat, and the blue grosbeaks and and others do really well in that that type of habitat and. 
it's surprising, you know, and you, you see that and you say, uh, well, you know, from a, a restoration standpoint, you know, when I first got into restoration, I was all about native plants. And so, you know, one of the things about uh, the Central Valley is, you know, we do have some natives, uh, especially some late summer flowering tarweeds and things, but most of our grasses are non uh, non-native annuals, and a lot of the forbs are non-natives. And so you, you sort of, you know, rather than trying to make it, you know, pure native, it, it's just like beating your head against the wall. And then when you see this abundance of life happening in these fields, it really makes you reconsider if this isn't invasive and causing problems, you know, we we need to pick our battles with weed control, weed management, and allow these habitats that are doing a lot of good to flourish. Yeah, I think uh, it's one of these, it's, this is an instance where almost ignorance is bliss a little bit versus where if, once you've become, maybe you've become a little bit more educated on, on native versus non-native plants. I'm very guilty of this is you find, you find it hard to look at a weed dominated area and think that that's okay. Right. But yeah, but calling back to the, the episode with, with Jamie Marty, you're talking about birds there. We talked about uh, a number of native pollinator species where again, you got to take your, your human lens off of it. Uh, you're looking, you're taking these areas that are dominated by plants that they're, they're not native, but they've been, they sure have been here for a while. Right. And so you've, you've actually, even in this short period of time of say a hundred years or so, you've had the birds, the, the bees, the butterflies adapt to, and become reliant on, on the food sources that are there. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, sort of a opening moment for me was, uh, you know, again, you say you take a look at a, this at a weedy field, and you think, all right, well, let's uh, let's start mowing this thing down. Let's let's spray it. Let's let's start trying to plant natives. But you're not thinking about the fact that you you're you know for for some species you're you're completely decimating a a critical food source that they become reliant on, and um, so it, it's. Again, the focus of this podcast is to try try and bring light to to moments like that. Uh, I think if you're if you're a person who who doesn't work in this field, a mustard you know a mustard flowers are, are beautiful. Hemlock maybe not beautiful, but it's it's interesting looking. Right. It's right. There's so much. It's it's all perspective. So, uh, did you think of a better name than Weedy Fields? Not yet, but I, you know, I think. For me, I, I definitely went through a kind of a purist phase and then an acceptance phase. I guess I'm still in that. But, uh, you didn't get depressed? No. Well, a little bit, you know. Uh, but there are, there are other more depressing yeah, the, things. Yeah, the, the, the steps of, uh, yeah, I don't know, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the five, seven, Stages of grief, yeah, I think. Of, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, environmentalism or, or something like that. But yeah, seeing, you know, what these habitats can do and I guess, you know, picking your battles and realizing that, I think I said in our earlier conversation where when you have even, you know, compared to some of the the big projects like in eastern Sacramento County, you know, the Bufferlands is pretty small. You know, we're really actively managing uh you know, of the 3,500 acres, including the treatment plant, we might be managing like 1,500 acres actively. And yet that's a lot. 
you know, and it, it takes a lot of work. And we try to restore some areas and where you just have to tinker with it afterwards. But you really do, you know, we have some some rough weeds. One of them is perennial pepper weed. But those I, I have yet to see, though there are some bright green metallic beetles that seem to really like those. But otherwise, they quickly become uh, kind of a monoculture that pepper yeah, weed. Yeah, and I think and I think the key takeaway there is yeah, pick your battles because there are certainly weedy species that once they if they come in and get established, they're they're really going to outcompete everything there. So, y- including the other non-native food source, right? Non-native uh, plant species. And I just think off the top of my head, and also another one is the stinkwort. In, yeah, in our region as well. Stinkworts, you know, come on fast, you know, in the last 10 years or so. And it's a problem. I mean, there's one of the burrowing owl sites that I, it's on private property and it was like an abandoned parking lot. And, you know, burrowing owls, again, it's, it's odd that they're struggling so much because they're so adaptable, but it's a old parking lot that was abandoned and it had really good sight lines. That's what they like. And, you know, ground squirrels also like disturbed areas. And so they had a bunch of burrows out there. The burrowing owls came in and, you know, now it's just stinkwort. Mm. Which which is uh, a pretty bushy, dense growing uh, weed. Right. It, it, can form it almost looks like tum- sometimes from a distance i'm like is that tumbleweed or is that stinkwort yeah, yeah 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 so yeah definitely not very usable though i'm sure i'm sure there's some some insects that are right. lo- loving it but again lens of what you're looking through and if- yeah i remember a friend of mine just go on a little quick tangent telling me look in the fall for western pygmy blue butterflies in the tumbleweed plants uh, and i did and they're I mean, they're ridiculously abundant, and they're these tiny little butterflies that seem to do well on tumbleweed. So, yeah, there you go. Who would have thought? Okay, so we're coming through here, weedy fields, kind of unlikely places where where certain bird species are succeeding. Observing time and not trying to have this thing. I I know we could easily talk for probably three hours. Yeah. Let's come. Let's try. Let's come back to the origin of why we got to know each other, which was through our bur- through burrowing owls. This is another bird species who thrives sort of in unlikely places. And you you had mentioned they're, they're not doing great, but they have done a good job at adapting to a very altered landscape. Definitely. Correct? Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're really challenging from a like the South Sacramento County HCP spilled a lot of ink, as it were, on burrowing owls. But a lot of where the burrowing owl habitat at least was, you know, they've really declined in the last even 10 years or less, uh, but was on this urban boundary habitat and on levees and in abandoned lots that maybe had got sprayed every year and they had, uh, you know, uh, ground squirrels, you know, and that's another thing I think just... You know, weed control and and herbicides are such from people like the general public who's into the environment. You know, the idea, and I I remember that when I went out to Hedgerow Farms the first time and learned that how much, you know, just with farming and weed control that herbicides are a part of that, and it gave me pause. But you come to realize, in using that intelligently, it is an important tool. But back to the burrowing owls, you know, these habitats, these vacant lots and levees with ground squirrels had tons of burrowing owls. I mean, in back in the right around 2000 to uh, about 2007, 8, just 
off the buffer lands, along some of the creeks that come into the buffer lands, you could walk along these levees and see like 15 burrowing owl. And now they're all gone. And the reason is because the levees have been maintained more. Some of the abandoned lots, a lot of them, you know, they now have sidewalks and some park like features, and they're just more people, people walking their dogs. Ground squirrels are being controlled, understandably, because these are levees for flood control purposes. Not good to, but, have, not to, get, good to, have, uh, not good to have Swiss cheese levees. Exactly. But yeah. the, the squirrels take to them, and then the burrowing owls you know, take to the squirrel burrows. Sure. And I think in a previous talk you'd given, though, I, I, I know you talked a bit about where the owls are coming from, and let's just put it this way. Needless to say, it's it's a complicated matter as to how and why things are going the way they're going. There, there's the obvious human presence component, like we've just like you've just mentioned. But could you speak a little as well, kind of the the dispersal of, of the owls? I, I think that was something you had discussed a little bit about, maybe in regards to breeding as well. Yeah. So burrowing owls have. They're one of the most interesting species, I think. And just really, just stepping back a little bit. So kind of, the, my theory of the case of getting interested in burrowing owls in part was just that they're inherently interesting. But I also thought my conservation efforts, especially what I did outside of work, if there was any species that people would be into conserving, it would be burrowing owls. You know, people love owls in general, and burrowing owls are just incredibly charming bird. Yeah, and you can see them. In, I mean, if you take an owl and put it in the middle of the day, exactly. Diurnal. Yes. Yeah. They are. Uh, they're just about. They can be active at any time, but you're. You often see them into the late morning and again in the afternoon, sometimes all day. And they're they're just really interesting. You know, they call, they bob, they have big eyes. Uh, you know, people love them. And then, you know, so I learned about they were doing the draft uh, South Sacramento County HCP. And it, it started out kind of different from what it what the final version is. There were several different, I think, consultants that worked on it. But I got brought in to kind of mapping owls just kind of in my spare time. You know, someone asked me, well, where are burrowing owls? And I knew of a couple and I asked around and then I just like drove all over likely habitat and started you know, recording them and mapping them. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that is now, as uh, Elk Grove has expanded, you know, it's now houses. But it's interesting that the owls were on this urban margin. You know, most of the breeding in the Central Valley is at fairly low elevations, even, you know, like below 200 feet in the valley. Which, uh, maybe which would mean, really, that's like the true valley bottom. Exactly. Yeah. And in the southern, uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, the southern Central Valley, they get a little bit higher up into the lower foothills. But around Sacramento, we have kind of two populations and there is some interplay between them. But we used to have fair number of breeding owls, which are down to, you know, just single digits in the around Sacramento that were more or less resident. And I say more or less because there have been instances where owls have been recorded breeding and then have flown north, and these are banded owls, and been recorded breeding again, like say in Canada. Wow. So uh, they had two breedings. You know, this kind of reminds me of what Bob was talking about with the tricolored blackbirds. But 
this is it's not as consistent with the burrowing owls. A lot of them, especially the breeding uh, sites along the coast and in, say, Santa Clara County, where there's still decent population of burrowing owls, those are year-round residents. Then there is an influx of birds from the north, maybe as, as far away as Canada, British Columbia, Alberta, that will come down this way, also eastern Washington, Idaho. And unfortunately, we're getting more and more information about the, and this is kind of on the cutting edge where they're really starting to learn about the movements of these owls. But those are usually the owls that will show up in places like Deer Creek Hills. They'll show up usually in October. And then for the most part, they'll leave by March. And so that's not to say that they they don't ever breed locally or that those areas don't get some breeding, but most of the breeding historically has been more on the flats of the valley with the low foothills, uh, again, grassland habitat, but starting to move up out of the flats of the valley, having a good influx of wintering owls. And then on top of that, like the bufferlands, even when we had good numbers of breeding birds, we would get an influx in the wintertime. And would, you, it, would you think that that's probably kind of that similar trend of uh, just a bird species coming to a, a specific area when it's the most useful and productive to them? Right. Yeah. The Especially those northern breeders, you know, they... Because they're coming down from Canada. Exactly. Yeah. Or the, you know, eastern Washington and Idaho, where it gets below zero and there are not many insects and rodents out and about then. So they come down here to have a easier life in the wintertime. Sure. And and why wouldn't you if yeah. you could, right? <laughs> and then they just from a landscape, you know, some of the things, they've really adapted well to some types of agriculture like, uh, you know, grass crops and alfalfa and other row crops. And this is really illustrated in Imperial Valley in Southern California, where you have irrigation canals with levees. And if you have ground squirrels and the ground squirrels aren't overly persecuted, the owls do really well in those habitats. And that has been, you know, sort of the the ace in the hole with burrowing owls in the state saying, well, there's still quite a few in the Imperial Valley. And one of the concerns now is with reduction and water availability from the Colorado River and taking some of those water rights and converting that or sending that to urban areas for urban growth, less agriculture will you know, change the nature of that landscape and maybe reduce the number of growing owls down there as well. Yeah, that's that moment again where you find, you don't expect it, but you find agriculture supporting an, a, a native wildlife species yes. where, where you did where you didn't it didn't seem obvious that that would be the case. And Swainson's um, hawks are another exactly. huge example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was curious, is the population in Imperial Valley, is that a resident population or is that a migratory one as well? To my knowledge, it is mostly a resident population and that they don't serve as much of a source population for the for the rest of the state. But on almost every one of these populations, except for a few of the, the Bay Area and probably like a San Diego County where just about all the birds are banded and tracked, you know, we have incomplete information. Yeah, because I think about how, I mean, Imperial Valley's the desert, right? There would be no, certainly be no crops out there, and, you know, right? It's one of the 
Oh, it doesn't I think it produces like all of the leafy greens for for the country basically through yeah. the winter. But altered landscape and it definitely wouldn't look the way it did without major irrigation. And it's just interesting when now when you come back to tricolor blackbird, it's kind of a similar thing where you wouldn't see them in places without dairy operations. Right. And a lot of the you know, the habitats that they evolved to reside in and breed in are so changed, but they've found these replacements. Yeah. 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 It just makes it again. I think you, when you, you come into this field and I say, this is coming into it, you know, more recently and you come in, you can't help but come in as a purist. And then you just have your, you kind of have your, the whole world shattered around you and see these instances. And, uh, again, just something I've been trying to bring light to, and it's just interesting. Yeah. And I think, and it goes to show you uh, for better, for worse, there's, there's hope in the, some, in the adaptability of some of these species. For sure. And I think people do recognize and, and really like these. One of the things I guess we have going for us in open space preservation, especially with grasslands, is, is people do love the open space. I mean, you know, the best evidence is the human species evolved in these open environments. And part of what makes us human is appreciating these open landscapes and, and not just open landscapes, but natural environments. You know, and one of my favorite things to do through work and through like Audubon Society is take people out on, you know, birding, but just general nature tours too. And it's some of the the most unambiguously fun things that I do is, you know, showing people the environment, teaching people the song of a bird or getting them a new bird or whatever it is, you know, it's just so rewarding. And, and more we bring people into seeing the, the value of these places, the better we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think again, we could have talked for three hours and I had, I definitely had more things I would want to talk about, but I, I can't help it. That's a great way of capping it uh, as far as the, I think the kind of the more bird conversation. And so in sort of wrapping these up, I've, I've enjoyed having a question lightning round, which is intended to be fun. Yeah. So, and don't think too hard about it. And I thought I, I've tended to ask this very similar questions. These are still be similar, but I thought since we talked to birds, we're going to go, we're going hard on birds. Okay. So what's your favorite grassland bird? That's a really good question. You know, I have trouble with all of them. I have trouble with this (laughs) because people often ask me what my favorite bird is and I, it changes and it's like the one I'm looking at right now. Right. And tell me, so then what's the, what's, what's most fresh on your mind? The the one that just is popping into my mind right now is long-billed curlew. They utilize uh, short grass, they breed in grasslands, especially in the Great Basin, and then they, they winter in the Central Valley. It's another species that's adapted really well to like alfalfa and uh, irrigated pasture type habitats, even uh, like soccer fields and baseball fields and stuff like that. And they're just, they have a great call and they're just a uh, Really, I think the writer, Jonathan Franson, once I was reading something, and he's a birder also, and he said they're a priori interesting, and <laughs> that, that works for me. Awesome. And that, that I was not expecting that answer, I pre- and I did not realize that they're, I was not aware of their utilization of, of grasslands, so I didn't, I didn't think of them. As, as a grassland species. So thank you for that one. Yeah, not exclusively, but they definitely sure. do. I mean, yeah, I mean, you see them and you short, associate them as shorebirds. Right. right? That's yeah, just, and they're our, they're... our largest sandpiper too. Yeah. So that's another pretty cool thing about them. Great. 
What's your favorite wetland bird species? Gosh, um, you know, one that, that pops to mind right now is hooded mergansers. Mm. This is a species that's really expanded in our area. And I did a waterfowl survey the other day and found, I think it was 22 hooded mergansers. Mm -hmm. And that was a bird back in, you know, the 2000 aughts that we didn't even see on the bufferlands. And, you know, in the past 15 years, they've become quite common and they've taken to wood duck boxes ah. and they're doing really well in California now and are just showing up in a, a lot higher numbers. Oh, interesting. I would say that's certainly a striking bird. That's an easy one to get people excited about. Yeah. And people love when you can show them a hooded merganser on a bird tour. That's uh, always a winner. Yeah, definitely. Uh, favorite bird of prey? It's hard not to say burrowing owl, but since we've already talked about burrowing owls, I'll have to say ferruginous hawk. Okay. I love them in the open grasslands. And there's some, especially, you know, as much as I love Eastern Sac County and I go out there, uh, you know, I've been out to Deer Creek Hills and Michigan Bar, uh, you know, over 200 times birding. But the farther south around uh, like Merced, Madera County, where there are these huge kind of ground squirrel prairies, you know, you get burrowing owls out there, but uh, the Ferruginous hawks are ground squirrel specialists, and you see them out there. They're just a real striking, big, like somewhere between a red-tailed hawk and, a, and an eagle, mm. and they're an impressive bird. Yeah. Yeah, myself, I've, I've seen them from, from much of a distance at, out of Deer Creek Hills myself. And I think it's important, I think it's important to note that, uh, it's amazing how you can be in city of Sacramento and drive half an hour East to the County, like you're mentioning, and really be transported into a completely different place, yeah, different world. One of my favorite places. Yeah. yeah. Right. Just turns into complete open rangeland and, and Oak Woodlands. Okay. And then this one's going to be your pick. What's the, what's your favorite bird that we haven't talked about? You can pick anything. Okay. I'm, I really like sparrows. And so those are, that's a group that I really like. And one of the most showy and, you know, kind of tying into the Deer Creek Hills theme is uh, lark sparrow. Mm -hmm. They're uh, kind of a grassland savanna species, blue oak woodland species. And as my friend John Trochet said the other day, it was when we saw one out at Casumnes, he said, it's the sparrow. Sparrow for non-sparrow lovers. They're so pretty that just about anyone who has any interest in birds would have to say that's a pretty bird. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And and in a group of birds that can be incredibly hard to differentiate if you don't if you don't know that that's definitely the one you can pick out. Yeah, they can, but you know if you look at them closely, they're really subtly pretty. And then yeah. also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention you know, Ed Pandolfino has done some studies on the song of, uh, they have incredibly, uh, lark sparrows, incredibly complex songs that just seem to go on and they're kind of like jazz riffing and, mm. and improvising and constantly updating and, and just going on this long jazz riff when they're oh. singing. All right. Great. You might, might've maybe mentioned a little bit, but, uh, what is your favorite underappreciated open space preserved land? Yeah, so I'm going to just switch it up completely because okay. we've talked about a lot of great places already in the valley. But one of my favorite 
places that isn't that far away is outside of Forest Hill. There's a little sequoia grove, and I, I also love redwoods and sequoias and forests in addition to grasslands and everything sure. else. And Again, uh, one hour versus three, right. three hours, or three hours. Uh, <laughs> maybe five. Flasser Big Trees is yeah. a really cool spot, and it's okay. a long drive out there and uh, just a really neat place. It's the northernmost grove of giant sequoias, and there are only six of them, but oh, wow. it's very cool. I have seen that on a map, but I have, and I almost went to it last year, but I, yeah, you know, it's a long drive. So I ended it up is a long, something different. very twisty drive. It's about 25 or six miles beyond Forest Hill on Mosquito Ridge Road. Mm-hmm. It's great birding, great owling up there too. Okay, cool. And then, so the last one though, I, re- I last question I always like to end it on is uh, in what or where are you finding hope? I'm finding hope. In a couple of places, you know, we've already touched on this, but with the resilience of nature, you know, and it can be really difficult because, you know, right now there are a bunch of lands that I'm commenting on as a, you know, outside of work, just as a groups on, you know, potential expansions or reconfigurations of the American River Parkway for flood control. And, you know, this plan was just released on idea of expanding Folsom even further south and taking out even more grassland. But what I do take hope in is the resilience that we've talked about and also just how many people are I've been incredibly humbled by how many people devote so much of their time and passion and intelligence and and everything else, you know. And I've mentioned in Padnolfino, he is one. Dan Arola is another. And so it makes me always want to up my game and do better because they uh, they really kind of show me the way. As John showed me the way into the birds, you know, they've really helped show me the way into more uh, the, you know, being effective as a conservationist. Well, great. Well, with that, Chris, thanks so much for taking some time to talk. And I think we'll, we'll probably have, again, we, there's a lot of birds we didn't talk about. So I think we'll have to do another one eventually. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of fun, you know, just get me going on. And there's so much more, but yeah, it's, it really is a, a wonderful uh you know, just to have the opportunity to be out in the field as yeah. as much as I do. Really appreciate your interest. Absolutely. Well, and I think, and I'll definitely include some notes in the episode description. And I, I know, I know you guys host uh, hikes sometimes out at, uh, you know, like you, I think you alluded to, uh, you'll have people out for birding or different hikes out at Bufferlands. So I'll definitely include some links there to the website. Great, great. And Sacramento Audubon, every Saturday and Sunday all year long, uh, they have a trip to go on so it's a great resource awesome there you go thanks chris thank you hey guys it's marshall again thanks so much to you the listener for sticking around to the end i appreciate that you're interested in something that interests me and i'm passionate about if you enjoy what you're hearing and want it to continue please take a moment to rate the podcast or share with a friend and i'll see you in the next episode